The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box, and these are your headlines this Friday morning. The Bank of England hikes interest rates by 75 basis points. That's the largest jump in over 30 years. The governor, Andrew Bailey, has told CNBC the measure is necessary despite the threat of recession. We have one of the largest upside risks to inflation in our forecast that we've had in the 25-year history of the NPC. U.S. stocks end Thursday's session in the red, this ahead of the non-farm payroll report for October, which is expected to show employment activity dropping to its slowest pace in two years. Chinese tech stocks drive the Hang Seng sharply higher amid reports of positive U.S. audits of China's big companies and hopes that the country could put aside its zero-COVID policy. The German Chancellor Olaf Scholz touches down in Beijing under pressure to take a tougher line on China and diversify away from the world's second largest economy. And it's sinking in now. Elon Musk Twitter layoffs reportedly start today, while tech giants including Lyft and Stripe slash thousands of jobs and Amazon forces hiring. So, very good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawkbox. Good morning, Karen. Good Welcome morning. back from Portugal. Thank you. Did Nasa. you get a Vina Verde or uh, you've got a little port, a little port or something I like that? I took some uh, red and uh, carried it onto the plane. Lovely. Tempted to open it at one point, <laughs> given the delays, but you know, <laughs> oh, made fantastic. it back. Fantastic. Well, Joe, given uh, what you've told me about the journey, you probably needed to, to be drunk just ah. to get through it. We seem to still face an uneasy, just uncertain travel pathway, I think, when we just go in on short haul flights. It's just a series of disruptions. So it's a bit crap then, through the airport, is what you're saying? Basically, the plane, and it was just a series of issues, right? Oh, the airport's busy. Yes. Everybody is travelling. We queued at every single point that you could possibly queue at in Lisbon. Wow. It was really busy. I thought you'd just have to flash your swanky CNBC staff pass. And, oh, which one was that? You know, the, where, where was that? It, it, was it issued it, somewhere and I forgot right, to take okay. it? But yeah. it does say something about demand to your point as we you know, yes. kick off the program we talk about the economy. We've still got demand for services, yes. whether that's business or leisure travel here in the backdrop. Well done. You've brought me back to the story that I should be telling at this point, which is about the Bank of England and what the bank is up to at this point. Uh, so we saw a 75 basis point hike Uh, That is the largest hike since 1989. It takes interest rates in the UK to 3%. Sterling fell nearly 2% to a two-week low against the dollar. As the bank said, Britain faces its longest recession since records began a century ago. Governor Andrew Bailey warned of a, quote, tough road ahead. But he also struck a dovish note on the pace of future rate hikes, saying the so-called terminal rate, that's the rate where interest rates top out, those being priced in by the market currently look too high. Well, Jamana spoke to the governor after that decision and started by asking why he'd been so explicit in pushing back against market interest rate expectations. Well, 
we spent a lot of hours in the Monetary Policy Committee and you know, reaching, out, reaching out conclusions. And one of the issues that we've been really wrestling with, and obviously there's been, a, I mean, I should say that as I, there's been a very big movement in market interest rates during the course of August and September. And particularly you know, when the market was going through a very turbulent period in, in the second half of September. Now, we've seen some of that reverse, but it, you know, it's still, it's still in, 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 in the course of doing so. And so we spent a lot of time saying, how can we, in a sense, reconcile our view of the economy, our view of inflation, uh, where it was going to go to with the market curve? And we do this partly for our forecast. And we found it very hard to do. So, you know, you're correct to say, I regard it as a very high bar for us to comment explicitly on market rates. We tend to use them, we use them as a... a conditioning assumption in our forecast. We discuss them a lot in our meetings, but we don't tend to sort of to judgment, pass judgment. But the, the gap was so big now that we felt, you know, this is not only a, you know, a difficult issue to come to terms with, but it's going to have a direct effect on the economy. It has a direct effect on mortgage rates, for instance, in this country. But, you know, even after what you said today, markets are still pricing in a peak interest rate of 4.67 percentage points. Have the markets just misunderstood what you were saying, or is it, are you happy with Well, I'm not going to say what, what so we, we've been there clear. We, we don't have a rate in mind for the future because we take our decisions you know, meeting by meeting. I would say this, though, that that... that you know, 4.6 sub percent rate compares to the rate we had in our forecast, which is only you know a week or so ago in terms of when we finished it, um, although somewhere around about five and a quarter. So you can see how much the markets moved even during that period. And if you go back in time, you get to rates you know, to rates over six percent. So the market has moved, moved a lot. Do you think we're getting closer to wait and see mode, though, given your updated forecast today? Well. I would also stress the point, another point in our forecast, which is we have a inflation coming back down to target and going below target, actually. Um, but we have, quite a, we have one of the largest upside risks to inflation in our forecast that we've had in the 25-year history of the MPC. A lot of that has to do with the tightness of the UK labour market. The UK labour market is very tight. Labour force has shrunk uh, since, since immediately before COVID. So there are risks. And it'll be those risks that I think will have an important impact on how we, yeah, when we next meet um, in December and then thereafter, how we think about policy decisions. So I'm not going to give you a, you know, a view on what the next rate, rate move or not is going to be. Well, I know you're also not going to comment on what the government are going to do because no one knows at this point. But if we do end up in a situation where the government did deliver on fiscal tightening, does that take the pressure off the Bank of England to tighten rates? Well, we would put that into, of course, into our, into our assessment process and into our, and our next forecast, and uh, you know, it would be part of the conclusions, because we do condition our, you know, our view on what we call announced government policy. We had to sort of think about, slightly reconfigure that this time for the energy policy, but we will, might I expect we will get a set of announcements when the Chancellor makes a statement, and we will take those into consideration. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've had the likes of uh, Bank of Canada, RBA, today Norges, step down a little bit with their, their pace of hiking, mm. namely about concerns on what higher interest rates do to mortgage rates and the impact that that's going to have on the real economy. Is this less of a concern for the Bank of England? Well, the mortgage, mortgage rates and the mortgage housing market, of course, features in our assessment of the economy in the same way as I'm sure it, you know, it does for other central banks. So we're all you know, keen followers of our housing markets and our mortgage rates. 
I, I think the other thing I would say is, of course, what ultimately we target is inflation, price stability, and that will, of course, have a big impact on what future mortgage rates will be. So that's important. I would also say that I don't expect that the rate, rate increase that we've made today will feed through into, certainly, it will feed through into those who've got variable rate mortgages. It will, I would not expect to do the same into new fixed rate mortgage deals, and those are the largest part of the new market in this country, for two reasons. One, because you know, the market had actually priced in what we were going to do today. They, they, they just concluded that that's what we were going to do. But secondly, this point you know, we, I've made that you know, we think the curve went too high, and we've made that point explicitly, and I you know, will leave the market to reflect on that point. And that will, of course, influence future mortgage rates. And I know this was an MPC meeting, but I just want to ask you one question about financial stability risk. Yes. Uh, would you deem them to be less today than they were, say, before all of this kicked off, before the mini-budget? Well, I mean, we had to deal with a particular, you know, quite marked financial stability risk in this country, in this country set off by the very pronounced movement, particularly in long, uh, long guilt rates in this country. Um, I think we have dealt with that now, so that particular issue. But I think it does point to a whole, whole set of sort of, la whole, whole part of the landscape, particularly the non-bank finance world, which we've got to, globally, got to have very, you know, very more, much more effective scrutiny of, because we've had a number of what I might call incidents in that, in that world. And this certainly dominates discussion in the financial stability, Global Financial Stability Board, for instance. So I would say in terms of our sort of surveillance of the landscape, I think the, you know, the alert level is pretty high, frankly, at the moment, because we have had a few you know, quite, quite striking incidents. Oh, there you go, Andrew Bailey talking with Jamana. And um, just to flag up for you, Jamana will join us a little bit later on, and we'll catch up with uh, Hugh Pill from the bank as well as we talk about the decision that was taken and how the markets are reading it. And of course, that's always critical, I think, with the Bank of England, because in the past, there have been so many missteers or the market's got the wrong end of the stick that I think this time round, interesting to see the reaction here. And we'll talk to Hugh Pill about whether he thinks the market now has understood the messaging from the bank and whether the bank has a good grasp of where it now thinks that the UK economy is going because baked into the forecasts here are two years of recession ultimately. Sterling immediately fell on the back of the announcement which I think um, possibly took some initially by surprise in the market given that this was a 75 basis point move but perhaps to a certain extent it looked like trying to make up for the mistakes of September when we only got the 50. Um, I guess the other issue is ultimately, you know, whether the gilt market has settled down. And I thought it was a good question from Jamana at the end, asking whether we've now seen perhaps um, a, a shift in the way that the bank is thinking about financial market stability risk at this stage. So it does feel as though the markets are just a little bit more relaxed with where we are with this bank and with the state of the current administration here in the UK. But, but we know that that's been a, a key factor here. We, we've had this sort of whirlwind six weeks, ultimately, 
of political changes and the bank deciding that it needs to go harder. Yeah, two points. Uh, one, I think Sterling just got strong-armed by the hawkish Fed. I mean, the narrative was very, very strong from the United States. We expected that to an extent, but I think it was still stronger than what many had anticipated, hence the pop on the dollar. And Sterling in that backdrop was a casualty like a number of other currencies. But I want to just circle back to the point uh, that the BOE was making yesterday about the difficult pathway ahead. I and mean, if we're talking about the uh, rate that which of the terminal level will get to, if it's going to be five and a quarter of the cent, and don't forget the market has been overpricing now, according to the Bank of England, that uh, some of those uh, queues in the marketplace might be just too strong. But if we get a five and a quarter percent rate, then the economy will contract 1.5% next year, uh, a further 1% contraction by 2024, unemployment to rise to 6.5% by the end of 2025. If you think about that scenario in the backdrop, how many people are going to be willing to live with those types of economic conditions and be happy with it? I mean, they may be forced to, but they're certainly not going to be happy. If you think about the political fallout here, as we count down to the timing too, in two years' time around another election, we have just seen how challenging it is for one party to hold together, let alone parties to hold on to their own leadership in an electorate. And I just wonder, alternative view, did uh, Truss do us uh, a favour in some ways, showing us what the other side looks like? If you don't hold the line, you don't have fiscal discipline, you don't take the tough medicine, then things could actually be much worse. We are going to have a difficult journey now, but she showed us what financial markets will do to the cost of debt and what the ramifications are for the economy if we don't take these measures. And I, I've got to say, they look like they're going to be extremely challenging if we keep on pushing rates up to tackle inflation. The messaging is, is, has been pretty clear, I think, from the bank. Um, I, I would say that, uh, you know, if you haven't made arrangements to protect yourself from these higher rates at this point, you've probably only got yourself to blame because I, I think that all of the central banks have been pretty much on the same page, barring the Bank of Japan and the PBOC, which are headed off on their own different economic adventure at this point. For me at the moment, the, the interesting question is the lag and how well these central bankers understand the lag. And the lag ultimately is the time it takes from beginning the pace of hikes to the point where those hikes ultimately bite into the economy. Mm. And it's all well and good to throw out, you know, we're going to have this kind of GDP in two years' um, time, we'll have a uh, recession for two years and this slowdown and so on and so forth. But we're already seeing in the house price data impact. The nationwide survey um, was pretty clear. We got the sharpest fall in a decade, barring what we saw through the COVID period here. So there is already a reaction. Um, I think we already understand that in terms of consumer behaviour, people are starting to moderate, even though we are only at 3% effectively at this point. The other bit that slightly confused me about the, the mix of information we got yesterday was that the, the bank's own forecasts saw a revision down for inflation as well as GDP. So we got the GDP, but we also got a revision down for inflation, even as I think Andrew Bailey was trying to walk this tightrope where he was acknowledging perhaps the need to be a little dovish on where we ultimately go on the terminal rate, but at the same time saying, well, we are insistent upon tackling inflation at this stage. Yeah, the question is whether when the ship turns around, 
we actually start to undershoot on some of the inflation numbers. Clearly, we're not in that window at this point. It keeps on surprising us to the upside. But we've now got these uh, numbers to the downside coming at some point. And will we actually get to a lower range quicker? I think that would be interesting to see whether it would then cause the Bank of England and other central banks to pull back. But, you know, from all the conversations I've been having for the last couple of days, the confusing part here is that we are still getting very mixed signals. And that's from the C-suite. And if you think about the technology companies I've spoken to in recent days, some of them are saying they're seeing no impact on demand. That after COVID, you've still got a lot of spending taking place out there, particularly in services. Some are saying they've seen a little bit of a change, the moderation that you're just mentioning. But it's not across the board. And I think that's the problem. It's very hard to read these signals. And it's very hard to tell when you're going to see that foot on the brake to reflect the tightening that we've had already, the economic conditions, the, the recession that is forecast in by some of the economists. Uh, so more on the Bank of England when we catch up with uh, Hugh Pill, the chief economist, later this morning as we dissect the message, the split vote and how reliable the forecasts will be out to 2024. Don't miss that exclusive conversation at 8 GMT. That's 9 Central European time. Well, we mentioned the data and a huge focus today as we look to close out the week on U.S. job growth for October. It is expected to slow to its lowest pace in nearly two years. Now, according to Dow Jones estimates, economists expect 205,000 jobs to have been added last month, down from 263,000 a month prior. The jobless rate that is seen holding steady around 3.6 percent. Average hourly earnings, and this is still key for those watching the inflation story, they're expected to rise 0.3% on month or about 4.7% on year, down from 5% in September. The headline jobs number will come after weekly jobless claims fell to a seasonally adjusted 217,000 last week, down 1,000 on the week and slightly better than the 220,000 anticipated. Although the number of layoffs is ticking up in some sectors such as finance, technology and housing, labour remains scarce in many service industries. And to the market action, a four straight days weaker is what we're witnessing. The Dow, the S&P, Nasdaq all reversing again in session yesterday. 1.7 down for the Nasdaq, again telling you about the pain points in the tech sector. The earnings season that crossed last week, it's carried on throughout the course of this week and it's reset again the mentality around some of those earnings. It was just a fascinating reading, looking at some of those big consumption plays stateside where the view down the track on some of the guidance has been pulled back for a number of these big names. In terms of big moving stocks to the downside, it was Apple for the Nasdaq and for the S&P 500 yesterday. To the Treasury markets, um, let's just take a look at how we are perched. We at 4.13 on that 10-year. Again, the hawkish spread this week was a fairly dominant factor for markets. Uh, just seeing what lies ahead, 4.7 on that 2-year. And you can see the inversion between the 2 and the 10-year at this stage. To the dollar, we mentioned uh, the strength in the dollar as a result around the yield story. Uh, dollar is king again. Morning session, what we're watching here is a clawback trade. Sterling, euro, yen, all trying to wrestle back some territory versus the greenback. Sterling is perched higher by four tenths of a percent in the trade, 112.12 on the boards. We are still 
off the um, 0.98 handle on euro. So we did fall a fair amount over the course of the last number of sessions. So that pickup only slight and you can see how much off parity we are on that euro trade. Dollar yen 147.90 the level currently. Dollar also weaker versus the Chinese currency. To the Asia markets, well, some terrific trade playing out across on the Hong Kong market. You can see well and truly ahead of the other major markets. Uh, there's been a lot going on the backdrop, uh, some hopes around reopening around COVID. That's a big factor for a lot of the markets. Also reports that uh, some audits of uh, large companies in China have uh, gone in the right direction. That seems to have unlocked a pop for some of these markets. And uh, you can see the Hong Kong market near on uh, 960 plus points to the upside, 2.4 on the Chinese market. So spilling across to the China boards as well. And you can see uh, the uh, Nikkei by comparison tracking lower by 1.7%. Let me take you directly to the Hong Kong stock uh, stocks and uh, to the uh, tech sector in particular. You can see a lot of heavy lifting coming through from this space, 8.2% higher. Uh, this is a sector you may recall uh, just last week. It was battered by concerns around the Politburo that was stacked with Xi's allies. So uh, as we talk about the bounce back, keep in mind all of these trades have suffered over the course of recent weeks and over the course of 2022. Well, coming up on the show, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz arrives in Beijing for an official visit, becoming the first G7 leader to land in China in three years. We'll have the latest after the break. And for more on the BOE rate hikes as well as the market reaction, you can check out the Scorebox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is in Beijing for an official state visit, the first by a G7 leader to China in nearly three years. Scholz, who landed alongside a delegation of business leaders, will meet with the Chinese President Xi Jinping and the outgoing Premier Li Keqiang. So so how important is this relationship? Well, let's have a wander around and we'll show you the big chips here. The German Chancellor likely to highlight the need for close cooperation with China, with his visit coming amid high inflation and recessionary pressures back home. Um, Around 2.7% of German activity uh, depended on exports to China last year, with car producers selling over 37% of their vehicles to the country. And let's just dwell on that number for a moment here, because even as you look at the import-export data And that relatively low 2.7% and the 2.4% figure for German jobs, we know that the auto industry is close to German political hearts and it is a very important market for German cars. Well, let's um, let's get out to Sam Vadas then, who joins us with more on this story. And Sam, as always, it seems, in any relationship with China at the moment, it comes with specific controversies, this meeting, not least the Chinese investment into a major port facility in China. How do we think this meeting will go? 
Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, you're spot on in terms of the relationship and just how important this is. And of course, as you say, also not coming out without its controversy and criticism. We have started to get some uh, certainly colour in terms of the reporting on the ground over in Beijing as to uh, what is happening over there. Olaf Scholz arriving this morning with his delegation uh, of 12 CEOs, the uh, European Chamber of Commerce told us this morning. Uh, they did arrive and were greeted by Chinese members of the uh, medical uh, staff and sector in hazmat suits, Olaf Schultz being whisked away and uh, producing a negative COVID test pretty quickly before he got down to brass tacks. He has reportedly had this meeting with President Xi Jinping now and President Xi uh, telling Olaf Schultz that uh, the two sides should work together, certainly uh, in times of turmoil. He is, as you say, expected to be meeting with uh, Premier Li Keqiang as well, but no doubt significant being the first uh, G7 uh, leader to certainly meet with President Xi Jinping since he secured that third term as the party chief. But uh, as you say, uh, it's uh, come with a lot of controversy, uh, particularly given the timing uh, off the back of uh, what was a fairly controversial story around Germany actually allowing that Chinese shipping company Costco to take that 25% stake uh, in the biggest port in Hamburg. Of course, that raised a lot of eyebrows as far as the United States. But uh, Beijing basically told uh, the US yesterday, the foreign ministry, to uh, sort of butt out of it. It's a business when it comes to this, when it shared some thoughts on this issue. But uh, certainly uh, what the market will be looking for and uh, many around the world will be watching is to uh, see just how far Germany will go, how determined it certainly is in reducing its reliance, uh, certainly on China when it comes to the trade picture, given that there's been a lot of talk in recent months that perhaps Berlin uh, is looking to actually draft or draw up a new trade policy with China. And that uh, is uh, talked, being talked about as uh, having included uh, a way to perhaps scrutinise a little bit further Chinese investments, uh, certainly uh, across Europe. Now, we were speaking to the European Chamber, as I said, in Beijing this morning uh, in terms of what to expect from this trip, what they're likely to talk about. Of course, uh, as I say, it's a very quick trip by Olaf Scholz, uh, around 12 hours uh, with, as I say, 12 CEOs. The European Chamber certainly saying to us that this is likely to be more about politics uh, than business, more so on where China China perhaps stands on the Russia issue, but also with Taiwan. But uh, it certainly is hard to imagine that it's not about business when, of course, uh, he has these uh, business leaders in tow from the likes of VW, uh, BMW, Deutsche Bank and also Siemens that, uh, of course, uh, they will be looking to uh, reassess this trade partnership with China, Karen. So it'll be very interesting to see uh, what they talk about and what lines we get out of Beijing this morning. Back to you. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.